I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. Learning from Lawrence of Arabia and Facts, Logic, and Lies in the Rush to War. I'm talking with investigative reporter Charles Lewis. Governments and companies lie, frequently, actually. We rarely find out the truth till years later. If we don't know the truth, then this idea of democracy is a, it's, it's ludicrous. It doesn't work if you don't have information. And the journalists have got to start turning it up and start actually doing their job for a change and, and not worry about access and be more scrutinizing of what's being said. And the public has got to be more discerning also about what they read and what they watch and what they hear. Thanks for joining us. As fears grow of a widening war across the Middle East, here in our shop we find ourselves talking about another war, the Great War, or First World War as it would come to be called, triggered 100 years ago this month when an assassin shot and killed Austria's Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo. Through a series of tangled alliances and a cascade of misunderstandings and blunders, that single act of violence brought on a bloody catastrophe. More than 37 million people were killed or wounded. In America, if we remember it all, we think mostly about the battlefields and trenches of Europe and tend to forget another front in that war against the Ottoman Empire of the Turks that dominated the Middle East. A British army officer named T.E. Lawrence became a hero in the Arab world when he led nomadic Bedouin tribes in battle against Turkish rule. Peter O'Toole immortalized him in the epic movie, Lawrence of Arabia. At war's end, Lawrence's vision of Arab independence was shattered when the Versailles Peace Conference confirmed the carving of Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine into British and French spheres of influence. Arbitrary boundaries drawn in the sand to satisfy the appetites of empire. A hopeful Lawrence drew his own peace map of the region, one that paid closer heed to tribal allegiances and rivalries. The map could have saved the world a lot of time, trouble, and treasure, one historian said, providing the region with a far better starting point than the crude imperial carve-up. But colonial power prevailed, and Lawrence wrote to a British major in Cairo. I'm afraid you will be delayed a long time cleaning up all the messes and oddments we have left behind us. But then and now, Lawrence's understanding of the ancient and potent jealousies of the people among whom he had lived and fought was ignored. In 1920, he wrote for the Times of London an unsettling and prophetic article about Iraq, then under the thumb of the British. He warned, that his countrymen had been led into a trap from which it will be hard to escape with dignity and honor. They had been tricked into it by a steady withholding of information. Things have been far worse than we've been told, our administration more bloody and inefficient than the public knows. It may soon be too inflamed for any ordinary cure. We are today not far from a disaster. Not for the last time in the Mideast would disaster come from the blundering ignorance and blinding arrogance of foreign intruders convinced by magical thinking of their own omnipotence and righteousness. How soon we forget, how often 
we repeat. There couldn't be a more timely book than this one, 935 Lies, The Future of Truth and the Decline of America's Moral Integrity, by Charles Lewis, one of our premier journalists who has inspired many of us in this craft to aim high and dig deep. First and foremost an investigative reporter, Chuck Lewis produced some of 60 Minutes' hardest-hitting stories. He left CBS News to found the Center for Public Integrity, one of the largest nonprofit investigative reporting publishers in the world. He wrote this New York Times bestseller, The Buying of the President, 2004, and four other investigative books. As for this new one, those 935 lies in the title were uncovered in a three-year study of the rush to war in Iraq by the Center for Public Integrity and the Fund for Independence in Journalism. It is, Lewis writes, a record of what U.S. government officials said to cause most Americans and their elected representatives to completely ignore facts, logic, and reason. Timely, too, for another reason. Fifty years ago this August, President Lyndon Johnson, at whose side I was then working, seized on obscure and unverified events on the other side of the world to rush Congress into the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, a motion that he turned into a blank check for escalating the war in Vietnam. As Chuck Lewis rightly says, it was a monumental misrepresentation. Welcome. It's great to be here. Do you think George W. Bush lied about Iraq? Do you think Lyndon Johnson lied about Vietnam? Uh, yes, <laughs> I do. You know, I've, I've tried very hard, you know, in the case of Bush, I actually was trying to give the benefit of the doubt because if someone believes it, if it's a matter of conviction and they've persuaded themselves of something that's untrue, is that a lie or do they just have misguided beliefs that, you know, and I tried to give Bush the benefit of the doubt there, but over time, each passing year, I've decided that I was way too generous. <laughs> and the, I'd look at flatly, did they make statements that weren't true? The answer is yes. Did they decide they were going to will, willfully do that over a period of two years, and was it an orchestrated campaign? And it was uh, false statements. There, that, those were not coincidental. If you look who said what, when, and the when especially is quite relevant. This was an orchestrated campaign, which, of course, Scott McClellan, the press secretary to Bush, publicly essentially said in his memoir after our report, Iraq War Card, came out, by the way. So I believe in both cases, uh, Lyndon Johnson and George W. Bush, they knew what they were saying was not right. They knew it was not precise or accurate, and they knew it would mislead the American people, but also do what they wanted to do. In both cases, they had an agenda. That's, that's what I believe. Well, you've said that we should never underestimate the capacity for self-delusion. Who was it who said that convictions are more dangerous enemies of truth than lies? I mean, they can believe it so so completely, be so self-deluded, right? Well, that exactly. All the Bush folks, Bush, Cheney, no one has done a candid interview with them where they actually pin their ears to the wall and ask them the tough question. I have not seen anyone do that. That's not coincidental. They've never been called before Congress. Now, what is that about? We used to have this idea of checks and balances. We don't have any checks and balances. Uh, the Bush administration also 
destroyed tens of millions of emails that no one could see. Uh, so, I mean, and, and no one said anything about it. They had 69 email accounts that were done through the Republican Party while they were conducting business, knowing that's a private corporation, not part of the United States government. So all of this uh, deceit and, 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 and elaborate efforts to deflect the public from, oh, yeah, the truth, <laughs> it's pretty outrageous. And, we don't, and so we'll never see some of those emails ever, I think. And that, to me, is tragic. But I have enough... I've seen enough now to make a conclusion. Yes, we were absolutely misled, and yes, they did lie. And they, it, maybe they're lying to themselves. Maybe they actually have come to believe what they're saying. They probably, many of them, some of them at least probably do. But they'll never say it on television, and I don't even know if they'll tell their spouses. Uh, who, who will ever say? I don't know. Your, your book traces from the Gulf of Tonkin right on through the Vietnam War, and it traces the, from the build-up to Iraq to the aftermath of Iraq. And in both cases, you clearly outline a pattern of deception that was continued over a long while. Well, it's clear. In both cases, those in power knew what they were doing, and those in power had a plan, and those in power orchestrated their plan, and the American people in both instances were completely in the dark. And Thousands of lives were lost in both cases. And the fact that we did it, and it's, and it's not a partisan thing. There are two different presidents, two different parties, 40 years apart. But guess what, folks? It was the same basic thing. Uh, we wanted to do a war of choice. When the reports came back from the Gulf of Tonkin, Lyndon Johnson believed them. I know that. I was right, right. there by it. The tragedy is he acted before they could be verified and before... Right. He could get right. And then he started telling himself that he did the right thing, even though the initial information was misleading. And the more he told himself that he was doing the right thing because there was this danger out here, and then he used it to get the Gulf of Tonkin resolution passed, he then felt he had to keep telling it. Well, and yeah, then you're, soon, you're a prisoner to your statements. So yeah. I, I understand that dynamic. So for the last two weeks, you could hardly turn on the television set without seeing the architects and the cheerleaders of the invasion of Iraq uh, 11 years ago being asked their opinion now of what the U.S. should do in Iraq. So there was ABC's Jonathan Carl just the other day turning to Dick Cheney and asking, what would you do in Iraq? There wasn't a bit of irony in his voice or in his eyes. Well, I, 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 that's an abomination. It's, there's a moral problem here. They're not telling the full truth, and they're presenting themselves, the media, a false image. But I know, I, as a, a veteran uh, from the networks, actually, I know exactly what that dynamic is. And you are rewarded for the gets you have, the people, the big the, names. The that interview you get. Yeah, right, and if you rip them to shreds, guess what? They're not going to come on your show. Uh, I've noticed that as Mike Wallace's producer. <laughs> You've lived in Washington how long now? Uh, boy, well... That's really scary, 40 years. So what did you learn in doing this book over the last nine years that you didn't know? Well, it's possible I was in danger of becoming cynical before, but um, I, I have to say the extent of the, of the 
of the lives. Uh, I actually didn't realize the pervasiveness. I, I just thought that occasionally some turkey would lie. I mean, but the, it was the extent of this. This is a systemic problem we have here. We have an inability to get the truth in real time, and the media has a complete inability to find out the truth in real time. And when it's right in front of their face, they don't always report it. Uh, and so, so we really have a problem here because if we don't know what the truth is in this country, we don't have a country. It's end of story. It's not our country anymore. Uh, th- this is fundamental. Uh, if, and, and if the public doesn't care about facts, then journalists, frankly, are not terribly relevant either. I had a professional crisis. Like, why am I doing this if no one cares? And false information is what they believe, not the actual information. You know James Risen, the New York Times reporter, right? Mm-hmm. He's refused to testify before a grand jury under subpoena and reveal a confidential source of information in his book, State of War, about the secret U.S. campaign against the Iranian nuclear program. The Supreme Court has refused to hear his case, and Risen now says he will go to jail if necessary. What are the stakes in this case? Well, they're very high. I mean, they're very high for, for Jim in particular, obviously. There's a dirty little secret about national security reporting. Uh, there's only about 15 or so people that do that full-time in the United States. In a country of 300-plus million people, only 15 or so do it for a full-time job. And, and Jim Risen happens to be one. And as you know, he's the one who co-authored the domestic surveillance stories, the one that Pulitzer back in 05. Uh, today, the, the, the dirty little secret in Washington is that we have thousands of cameras. Uh, every cell phone has a, a GPS tracking device. And, uh, and you also can't check into any government agency and sign in to get into a meet with someone because the government has that information and they'll know who came. And if you call them, their calls are potentially monitored and there is a general belief uh, oh. widely shared that your emails are scraped or at least accessed. And I know journalists who have been told privately by folks in the NSA and elsewhere that that's basically not untrue. Uh, and so you have a situation here. They know who his source was. They do? They do. And they have multiple ways in which they've identified who it is, and that's why they brought a case, and they have enough evidence that they hope and they think to convict this person. They've already... They want to convict the source. They want to convict the source, and they want to have Jim Risen be the one who helps them do it. But they don't want to necessarily betray their intelligence ways that they found out that may or may, they may be legal because they're government employees, but they're going to appear to be unseemly because they involve monitoring of employees and pulling all kinds of things. So we have a little, another strange thing going on here where the government doesn't really want to go anywhere near this subject. And so they would like, so we're all looking at Jim Risen and whether he goes to prison. And the real issue is actually the government. What, what are they mad about? Well, he did a story in a chapter in his book, State of War, that actually showed that uh, the CIA sent nuclear information to Iran. Oops. And uh, <laughs> they are living. Something we might yeah. want to know about. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. I want to know that the government yeah. responsible to the people was actually making these serious mistakes. Yeah, it's unbelievable that, that they were doing that. And it's unbelievable. And so Risen breaks that story in the book. 
And they are mad that he did this, and they frankly embarrassed them. Uh, and so they're trying, this is retribution. I think it has very little to do with anything but retribution. Uh, but I also think what is really disturbing now is the difficulty of doing this type of reporting. It was never easy. Now it is probably more difficult than it's ever been in U.S. history. And uh, uh, President Obama has used the Espionage Act against journalists more than any president in U.S. history. I think even Nixon only used it once against uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers, and Obama's used it how many times? Eight times. It's unbelievable. The Espionage Act. Right, the Espionage Act. And, and who would have ever imagined that? Uh, uh, this is something Obama never talked about in campaigns. He never publicly said he was going to go do this. And like a, a lot of things in his administration, he's trying to have it both ways. He's supporting a shield law to some extent in Congress for journalists. But on the other hand, he's criminalizing investigative reporting by going after sources. And, and so he's, he's throwing a bone or being accommodating to the national security establishment in Washington which, you know, in, in just a couple years period uh, did 76 million classified documents, far more than any time in U.S. history. And he's a prisoner to that community on, to a large extent. And this is a fellow who didn't know anything about foreign policy, he was a state legislator in Illinois and was a one-term senator, and suddenly he's become more hawkish against reporters than George W. Bush. Oh. I don't know why anyone, I don't know anyone who saw that coming. What does he know we don't know? That is really a, a, a peculiar thing, and it's not been adequately ventilated. And journalists haven't asked Obama directly the few times they have direct access. So what's at stake if we do silence and punish whistleblowers? Well, what's at stake is whistleblowers won't come forward. They know they're going to be prosecuted. They know they're being monitored. Uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, sources have dried up. There, there have been some panels in the last year or two in the journalistic realm, and, and uh, folks have talked about how it's harder to find people to talk now because they fear retribution. They know that this, the surveillance has gotten uh, incredibly intense, and the, stri- the, the stakes are incredibly high, and they get that. And so a lot of folks are, who might be inclined to leak, and leakers are, are wonderful because they tell reporters what they don't already have, and they can't find in any document. They're very essential. If Edward Snowden had offered you the NSA documents, would you have published them? I would have liked to. He didn't call. Um, but if he had? I would. I, I would have. Uh, you know, I, when I ran the Center for Public Integrity, we posted the Patriot II Act. We were told by the top aide to the attorney general, don't do it. You will be sorry if you do. And we quoted them by name in our article. Uh, and we posted within minutes. For my younger viewers, what's the Patriot II Act? The Patriot, uh, it was called the Patriot II Act, the Domestic Enhancement Security Act of 2003, to be precise. And they were introducing it just days before the invasion of Iraq, perhaps hoping no one would notice. It took the Patriot Act, uh, which substantially limited civil liberties for a large number of Americans and and in general, up the ante about security in America, but it took it to a whole nother place. The right. Patriot II Act was far more restrictive. Can democracy die of too many lies? Uh, I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, um, you're usually the one who quotes scripture. Uh, <laughs> but what, my only thing I could ever quote, I may not even have it perfectly right, but from Proverbs, 
when there is no vision, the people perish. Um, that, that happens to be one of the all-time most interesting statements I've ever heard. And I think it, if you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know what is happening, how are you going to embrace any problem of our time with any seriousness? If, if you're, all you're ever doing are uh, two, two uh, parties fighting over everything and everything is debatable, and you can never reach a consensus on any single thing, and you don't even have common goals anymore. Um, what are we here? Uh, starting to wonder. Uh, and so I actually, it, it goes pretty deep here. I think this is so fundamental. Um, and uh, I, I, don't, I think the only thing we have that we can learn is, I do believe that old uh, saw information is power. I think if we learn what the truth is, we find out what is actually happening, and we have the facts, we can act on them. But there are still many Americans who won't. I, I reconcile that myself to that. But there are a lot of Americans who need to, um, frankly, start paying attention. The book is 935 Lies, The Future of Truth and the Decline of America's Moral Integrity. Chuck Lewis, thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me. At our website, BillMoyers.com, we'll connect you to that Iraq War card, a searchable database of the 935 lies that led us down the path to bloodshed and chaos. That's all at BillMoyers.com. I'll see you there, and I'll see you here next time. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Funding is provided by Ann Gumowitz, encouraging the renewal of democracy. Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security at Carnegie.org. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Kohlberg Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman. And by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America, designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.